Take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 35. I tell you what, reading some recently in the book of Genesis and reading about this man named Jacob is uh, oftentimes like, he's one of those characters in the Bible that you read about him and it's like looking in a mirror. And reading some about yourself. What a tremendous character in the book of the Bible that Jacob is. And we're going to talk this morning about a very important topic. The need or the necessity of repentance. Not something you hear a great deal about today. But the necessity of repentance in a believer's life. So I want you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 35 and understand something as we go through the message this morning. I am going to be summarizing a lot of the narrative that actually picks up and begins at chapter 28. Chapter 35 is sort of the culmination of it. And so I'll be doing a lot of review. I would encourage you to go home this afternoon and Go back to chapter 28 and just read it all completely. I think you'll get a great deal uh, of, out of the story of the life of Jacob. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? The necessity of repentance in the believer's life. Genesis 35, and we'll read verses 1 uh, all the way down through verse 15. God said to Jacob, Arise... Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him. Bethel. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what I cannot do. I pray that he would speak to hearts. I can speak to ears, but it takes your Holy Spirit to speak to hearts. And God, I pray that you would do that today. Teach us from your word and help us to walk in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, Connie and I were at the beach on vacation. And as we were at the beach on vacation, some days when we would get out to go to 
visit someplace, or usually it was when we would try to find a new restaurant and go to that restaurant, you of course know what we would do because it's what you so oftentimes do when you're going to a new address. You take out your phone and what do you do? You, you call up the GPS app on your phone and you punch in the address and these things are wonderful. It takes you right where you're going. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, just because I've got my phone out, don't go trying to call me or text me. See, I, I, I cut off my phone in church just like any saved person does, right? <laughs> I'll never forget one time I was holding my phone up and I was making a comment about this and Dave Seeger is trying to call me on, to make a point and because and, you know if your phone rang in church I was saying you had to pause right there and share your faith in Christ with whoever called while we listened in and so I'm up here at the pulpit and Dave Seeger's calling me thinking he's going to put me on the spot but I had my ringer cut off so my, my, my phone's cut off. But anyway, it's great, these GPS systems. But you know something I noticed about the GPS system? We have the same phone. We both have the iPhone. And of course, when you punch in an address and, and you call up the maps to get there, they give you like three different options, the fastest route to get there and best route or whatever, about three different options. And we could choose the very same option on both of us having iPhones. And we noticed something as we we're going down the road following the route, there would be a little bit of difference between the two phones. That's interesting how that happens, isn't it? And going to Baltimore here recently for my surgery, we noticed the same thing. My phone's the newer phone, but oftentimes, well, again, we'd hit the same route and we'd, we'd be listening to mine and they'd both be very similar, but we'd say, no, I don't think so, and we would fall back on hers and go by hers. Same phone, hers was the older but little better app, apparently. But wonderful, wonderful tool. When I come to your house for supper, which needs to happen more often than it does, all you've got to do is give me your address and I'll punch it in and I'll be there for dinner time. Okay? You know, it's funny, the teenagers don't even realize how we used to have to do things. The paper map. And, you know, you'd have it spread out over your wheel, and some people pull off to the road. I usually would, and I'd drive down the road with it spread over the wheel. I'm trying to find my way. If it's at night, you're cutting on the overhead, or you're shining a little flashlight, and you're trying to find your way. Maps. GPS systems. Wonderful. Well, I want us to look at a fellow this morning from the scripture that he could have greatly benefited if there were something called a spiritual GPS system. Jacob could have benefited from something like that a great deal because it seems like his life has gotten off course more than his own course. His name is Jacob. He's a fascinating character when you read through the book of Genesis. He's also a very important character because God changed his name to Israel and from his 12 sons we get the 12 tribes of Israel and of course the Messiah came from one of those tribes. Very important character. When we're talking about key Old Testament figures it'd be hard to find anybody more important to the storyline of the Bible than this man by the name of Jacob. But what an interesting character he was too. He was the younger of twin boys and when he was born he came out clutching the heel of his older brother Esau and he later tricked his brother out of the inheritance that Esau was supposed to receive as the older son. They named him Jacob, a very appropriate name because the name Jacob means 
heel grabber or supplanter or trickster. That's what the name Jacob means. You are a heel grabber. You are a trickster. You're trying to steal from somebody else what is rightfully theirs. That's what the name means in the Hebrew. I'm not trying to make a judgment if that happens to be your name. I'm just telling you what the name Jacob means in Hebrew. What we learn in our text this morning is the importance of repentance in Jacob's life. Repentance in Jacob's life opened the door for God to work in his life once again. And what a wonderful lesson you and I get from that. Because if we're going to see God work in our lives the way we want him to, our lives have got to be filled with repentance. Now I realize that's a message not being preached much today. Repentance. You click on the television set and listen to preachers or internet and listen to preachers. When's the last time you've heard a sermon on repentance? Usually you might hear some kind of feel good, encouraging uh, you know, message, 10 steps to do such and such in your life or whatever. And, and nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I mean, after all, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy, some of our preaching is to encourage. But then he went on to say, some of our preaching is to rebuke. So not all preaching is to make you feel good, but also not all preaching is to make you feel bad. There's to be a balance. That's the beauty of preaching through books in the Bible because when you preach through books in the Bible, you deal with it all. Because the Bible has a way in one chapter of carrying us to the mountaintop and in the next chapter it might carry us to the woodshed and we need both. The problem is there's just not much we hear today on repentance. And yet the Bible says without holiness no man will see the Lord. And you see to have holiness in our lives there's got to be repentance in our lives. So very important subject matter. The Christian life begins with repentance and faith in Christ, but it continues that way. Somebody says, will, will I ever get to the point that I no longer need repentance in my life? Yeah, you'll get to that day when you see Jesus one day and you enjoy the consummation of your salvation. But until then, you and I need to live a life of faith and repentance. In fact, if you're not experiencing God in your life, it's probably because this is a missing element in your spiritual journey. First of all, with me this morning, I want you to see that repentance is a necessity. Repentance is a necessity. It is a necessity because of sin and neglect. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, Dr. Kent Hughes tells the story of boating one, one summer out on Lake Michigan. And while he was boating there on Lake Michigan, he saw a sparkling 40-foot yacht slip into the bay and drop anchor. And as her stern came around, he noticed the name on the back of the yacht it was the name residuals and instantly he understood the message the magnificent ship was the result of some very good investments residuals those are the kind of returns that we like but as Dr. Hughes points out, it is context that de defines the word. As he says, on the back of a yacht, it announces good fortune, but written over a jail cell, it declares exactly the opposite. Residuals. Time we get to chapter 35 in Genesis, we can see the chickens coming home to roost in Jacob's life. Residuals. You could write the name residuals over top of chapter 35. 
Though the chapter records a positive change in Jacob's life, namely his repentance, it records the residuals of his sin. Now there couldn't be a bigger contrast than that between chapters 34 and chapter 35. As uh, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse points out, chapter 34 does not even mention the name God one time. Chapter 34 is filled with lust, with murder with rape, with deceit, with wretchedness. But this chapter, chapter 35, Barnhouse says, is filled with God. His name appears ten times plus once as God Almighty El Shaddai plus eleven more times in the names Bethel and Israel. The contrast, Barnhouse says, is striking as it always must be in the life of a believer living out of the will of God and again when he returns to living inside of the will of God. You see, former experiences are not enough. You may remember that Jacob was the second born son of Isaac and Rebekah. Now bear with me this morning. Like I say, I'm going to do a lot of review in these chapters in Genesis that we don't have time in detail to deal with. And so I'll just kind of summarize. But as you well know, Jacob was the second born son of Isaac and Rebekah. Now back then, it was the custom for the father to uh, pronounce a blessing upon his sons. And the first son would get the better blessing and he would get the birthright which was usually a double portion of the inheritance. Through deception and trickery Jacob took the birthright away from his older brother Esau. You remember the story. Jacob covered himself in animal skins to make himself hairy because Esau was hairy. Jacob wasn't. And by this time, Isaac, their father, is blind for the most part. And so Rebekah hears Isaac telling Esau, go hunting the way you like to do. Esau, uh, he, Esau was a man's man. He was an outdoor, outdoorsman and a hunter. And, and, and Isaac had said to Esau, go hunting and get some of that wild game that you love to hunt. And, and then bring it back, fix it up and uh, make me a meal. And when I enjoy the meal, I'm going to pronounce the blessing of the firstborn on you. Well, Rebecca overhears all this, and so she tells Jacob, she's part of this trickery. She tells Jacob, because Jacob, the younger, was her favorite son. She says, hurry, you know, we're going to take animal skins, put on you, uh, so your arms will be like Esau's uh, arms, and and we're going to get some wild game, and I'm going to cook it up real quick. You're going to take it into your dad, and you'll get the blessing. And so that's what they did. Well, when it was discovered what they'd done, Esau was enraged. Jacob got the blessing and Esau gave a death threat. He said, as soon as my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. Knowing Esau's plan to kill Jacob, Rebekah comes up with a plan of her own. She tells Isaac to send Jacob away to her family in Haran to get a wife so that Jacob will not end up marrying a Canaanite woman. Isaac sends Jacob away. The plan works. Jacob is safe from Esau. Jacob sets out. He comes to a place known as Padan Aram. And in the night, He was all all alone and he was afraid. And God appears to him in a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder connecting heaven and earth and the angels going up and down on that ladder. And God speaks with Jacob and passes along the covenant that he gave to Abraham to, to Jacob. Jacob wakes up and he realizes what has happened here. And he says, this is an awesome place I am in and I didn't realize it. This is the very house of God. And the name of the place was Luz, but he changes it to Bethel, which in the Hebrew means the house of God. 
I was in the very house of God and did not know it. Well, as chapter 28 goes on to record it, as a result of that dream that God gave to Jacob, when Jacob wakes up, he makes some awesome vows and promises to God. Verse 18 of Genesis 28 says, Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, listen to this vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up as a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you give me I will surely return a tenth portion to you so Jacob makes some awesome vows and promises to God and then he moves on And between those vows and promises in chapter 28 and what we read this morning in chapter 35, something like 30 years have gone by in Jacob's life. 30 years. He journeys on to his mother's homeland. He finds her people from which he was to get a wife. He worked for Laban for seven years so that he could marry Laban's younger daughter Rachel. But Laban pulled a fast one on Jacob and tricked him just like Jacob had done with his dad. And so the trickster, the heel grabber, got a taste of his own medicine. He got out foxed. Laban marries off his older daughter Leah to Jacob instead of the younger daughter Rachel. You say, how could something like that happen? Well, the brides would have been veiled. The, the wedding in the evening time. And so they got done with the service. They went into the, uh, the home uh, where, where they would spend the wedding night. And then the next morning in the light of morning, Jacob wakes up. He rolls over. He puts his arm over Rachel. But uh-oh, it's, it's not Rachel. It's Leah. That story cracks me up every time I read it. <laughs> can, can you imagine the guy's expression? Light of morning, he rolls over and woo, he's expecting Rachel and there's Leah. <laughs> Jacob confronts Laban. And Laban says, of course, we can't marry off the younger before the older. Let this wedding week, Leah's week, I, I really feel sorry for Leah in the scripture because she was never loved really. But anyway, after the week, uh, after her week, let her have her week as a new bride. And then I'll marry Rachel off to you if you'll work another seven years for me, which Jacob agrees to. And it seems like God prospers everything Jacob does. And Laban's sons become jealous of Jacob. In fact, they become so jealous of Jacob that Jacob finally realizes, you know what, it's time for me. I, I better get out of town and I better, I better leave Laban's family and Laban's place and I better go back where I'm from. It's time to leave. Folks, throughout all this, you can see the hand of God at work. It's like Jacob has forgotten God, but God has not forgotten Jacob. And so God tells him, here in verse 1, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In other words, Jacob is to return to the place of his earlier vows. God commands him to go back to his home. He wants him going back to Bethel. Folks, it's not about the geography though. It's not about the place, it's about his heart. 
God is wanting to get Jacob back to that place where God started working in his life and Jacob would remember all that and he would live up to those vows and promises that he had made. If it took the place to do that, then God wanted to get him back to the place. But you know what? There's a problem with going back home, isn't there? Because when he goes back in that direction, who's he going to no doubt encounter? Esau. What's Esau going to do? Because remember Esau said, when dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. So what's Esau going to do? And so again, he's afraid and God uses that fear inside of Jacob. In the journey back home, Jacob gets alone with God one night and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night. And he was never the same after that, even though he left that wrestling match with a limp. You could say that Jacob was never a stronger man. He was a changed man, a renewed man, a surrendered man. Well, he meets up with Esau. They bury the hatchet. Esau is very gracious. He's forgiven Jacob, and so the two brothers move on. And remember, God has told him to go back to Bethel. But for some unknown reason, Jacob again stops short. He moves into a pagan town by the name of Shechem and he puts down roots there. It's it's a case of almost obedience. Now you and I can relate to that. I mean, let's be honest, almost obedience. We know what we need to do. We know what God's wanting us to do, and we almost do something, right? Almost obedience. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Saul. When, Saul, when God said to Saul, you need to defeat all the, you need to wipe out the Amalekites, wipe them all out. Remember the Amalekites, when they were the children of Israel were leaving Egypt. Right at right from the get-go, as they were leaving Egypt, the Amalekites met them in the southern region of the land and, and fought against them. Israel was new. They were coming out of Egypt, going on their journey to the promised land. And immediately the Amalekites met them and tried to attack them. It'd be like trying to attack somebody on the way to the baptismal pool. And God never forgot that about the Amalekites. He said, I'm going to destroy them for what they did to my people. He told Saul, wipe them out. Saul went to battle against them and Saul ended up saving all of the best of their belongings. And Samuel meets up with him and, and Saul says, I've obeyed the Lord my God fully. And Samuel says, oh really? Then what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears? And, and Saul says, oh we saved the best so we could sacrifice to God. And Samuel says, God didn't ask you to do that. To obey is better than sacrifice. And he said to Saul, because of this, I'm going to remove the kingdom from you. And that's what he did. Almost obedience. We think it's okay. It's not okay. Jacob is a case of almost obedience. He stops at Shechem. He doesn't go back uh, to Bethel. And it cost him and his family because in chapter 34, Jacob's daughter Dinah ends up getting raped by one of the local boys. Jacob wasn't supposed to have his family there. Has his family there. She ends up getting raped. Then the local boy wants to marry her. So he comes with his dad, sits down, and they make arrangements. They say, you know what? We'll let you marry Dinah under one condition. You and all the men of the village are going to be, going to have to be circumcised. 
They said, okay, we'll agree to that. They go back to the elders of their town and they say, we need to do this because after all, it's going to be good economics because we will enjoy the fruits of their labor as well as them enjoying the fruits of our labor. It'll be a good, it'll be a good economic marriage. And so they talk the men of their town into doing that. They're all circumcised. And when they're sore and can't move, they're immobilized because of that. Jake, two of Jacob's sons come in and murder all of the men. Now Jacob's really afraid. Now everybody in the area is going to turn on us and hate us. And in the midst of this, God has eight words for Jacob. And it's that original command. You need to get up. You need to arise and go back to Bethel. Do you know why God wanted him to get back to Bethel? Because Jacob had gotten so far away from everything that Bethel had meant in his life. You see, Jacob could not rest on all of those earlier experiences. His life has become a mess. I think of what Charles Spurgeon said on one occasion. God never allows his children to sin successfully. Repentance was a necessity for Jacob because sin and spiritual neglect had become such a part of his everyday life. Now, am I speaking to anybody here this morning? I think I am. God did a work in you many, many years ago, but your life since then has been filled with spiritual neglect and apathy and complacency and even sin, transgression. You can't go on that way and experience God in your life. You need repentance in your life. And so today I want to invite you, I'd like to invite you to deal with some of those spiritual skeletons that are in your closet. You can't rest on vows that you made maybe decades ago in your life. Those vows have to be continually fleshed out and lived out every day in your life. What sin do you need to turn away from? What apathy, what neglect? Is there some hidden sin that you know you need to turn away from? What's preventing you from growing in the Lord? J. Oswald Sanders said, you're as close to God right now as you want to be. There's the necessity of repentance because of sin and neglect. But also there's the need because of the holiness of God. God is a holy God. And all through scripture, it's clean lives that God uses. Now, people come to him dirty. People come to him dirty. But then God cleans them up and uses them. When they're consecrated to him. I think of Daniel. Daniel there in Babylon. Verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1 says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not be defiled. He purposed in his heart that he was going to remain true to God. And look at how God used him for the next 70 years. Repentance is necessary. Secondly, repentance involves action. Pick up reading with me in verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Repentance is not something that we just talk about. It involves action. Jacob needed to arise. He needed to first of all get up 
from where he was to begin a journey to somewhere else. He had to make some decisions, some very definite decisions and action. And he had to change. Folks, that's what the word repentance involves. It's the word metanoia. You're going one direction, your own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned our own way. You're going that way and you're doing it about face and you, and you come back towards God. What's James 4 say? God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. You make an about face and you go to, go to the Lord. Wayne Gruden, theologian Wayne Gruden says of repentance. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. He says, of course, genuine repentance will result in a changed life. He goes on to say, a worldly sort of grief may involve great sorrow for one's actions and probably also fear of punishment, but no genuine renouncing of sin or commitment to forsake it in one's life. Finally, he also says it is important to realize that faith and repentance are not confined to the beginning of the Christian life. They are rather attitudes of heart that continue throughout our lives as Christians. That's what Jacob needed to do. He needed to repent. He could not stay where he was. Does it sound like somebody else in the New Testament in one of Jesus' parables? The prodigal son, right? Prodigal son took his father's wealth, went into that foreign land, squandered it all away when he was all alone, broke and in need. You remember what he said? How many of my father's hired servants have more than this? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to arise and go back to my father. And that's what the prodigal son did. Repentance. Notice also that once he got up and went to Bethel, worship was to be renewed there, symbolized by the building of an altar. Dr. Kent Hughes writes, The pilgrimage was to culminate in the building of an altar at Bethel, which was a long-standing site of Canaanite worship, and by doing so to declare the name of the true God, the intent was to drive a stake into the heartland of Canaanite worship. But before his worship could be renewed, Jacob knew that idols had to be done away with. Now folks, imagine this. Here was a man of God, and yet there were idols that had crept into his household. Do you have any idols that have crept in? We're, just, we're a lot more sophisticated about idols today, aren't we? But we have them. Jacob told them, purify yourselves and change your garments. That was an Old Testament symbol of confession and cleansing. There's the putting off and the putting on. The New Testament talks about this. In fact, some scholars believe a text like this might be the background to the Apostle Paul talking in Ephesians 4, for instance, about taking off and putting on. That this text right here is the inspiration for that. So from Shechem, Jacob and his people are to make, they're, they're to finish making their pilgrimage to Bethel as a new people. Now at the end of verse 3, we see a marvelous note. God has never left Jacob even in these 30 days. Years. Isn't that great? I think of somebody else. Jonah in the belly of that fish. Do you think God, you think he thought God had left him alone? Yeah. Had God left him alone? No. Sometimes when God gets you in a position like that, he's, he's trying to break you. Trying to get you yielded. It's grace. We don't see it. It's grace. 
Jacob buried the idols. He takes all these earrings. Now, these weren't just everyday earrings. These would have been earrings engraved with pagan symbols. In fact, through some archaeological digs that have been done in modern times in this area, they've come up with some of these earrings that, that have like a crescent moon on them and are uh, dedicated uh, to the pagan moon god. It would have been things like that that they had to take off. Canaanite gods, Canaanite false gods. They had to take off elements that had been dedicated to those pagan false gods. They had to get rid of all that. And notice what Jacob did. He buried them so they couldn't go back later on and pick them back up again. Some of you need to bury some idols today. Remember, repentance involves action. What action do you need to take today to get your life back on track with God? Some of you might need to let go of some pretty bad stuff. There are things you've let in your heart and mind that don't belong there. Those things need to be buried. Get rid of them. Make a clean break. Others need to deal with with apathy and complacency. Remember what Jesus told the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2? You have forsaken your first love. You've taken a great fall. You've fallen out of love with Jesus and you need to repent and come back. You need to repent of that loss of love for the Savior. Is there prayerlessness in your life that you need to repent of? Maybe you don't read the word of God like you should. Prayerlessness. I got another question for you. When is the last time you have shared your faith in Jesus Christ with anybody else? When's the last time? Folks, as believers, we need to repent of these things. Sins of complacency and apathy. If we want God to do a fresh work in us, we've got to repent of these things. We've got to repent of sin in our life that we know is not pleasing to God. We've got to lay it down. What are we going to do? Are we going to love our sin more than we love Christ? What relationships do you need to deal with? Thirdly, I want you to see that repentance brings renewal. Beginning there in verse 5, it says, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so she called its name El so he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty, that is El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. And then he goes on to say, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. When a man is walking with God, even others know it. Verse 5 says that the people around the area feared. I think of when the children of Israel were about to enter the promised land under Joshua's leadership and they sent in the spies. Remember what Rahab told the spies? She told the spies, the dread of you has fallen on my people. We know that God is with you. It's interesting in the Old Testament how neighboring people could tell when Israel was walking with God. And when Israel was walking with God, they feared. 
Now notice God reminds him again, your name shall no longer be Jacob. God had said that back in chapter 32 when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And when Jacob prevailed, you remember what Jacob was asked back in chapter 32. The angel of the Lord said, what is your name? Had God forgotten his name? No, God doesn't forget anything. But in asking Jacob his name, it was, a, it was confession. Jacob had to say, I am Jacob. I'm the trickster. I'm the deceiver. That's who I am. And when he admitted that, God said, I'm glad you've admitted that. That's not going to be your name anymore now. But your name is going to be Israel, one who is a prince with God. Again, the name change symbolized a new, a new character in the man. He had to admit who he was. Have you ever admitted that? God, this is who I am, and this is how I've transgressed, and this is what I've done. And God says, I'm glad you finally come to that realization. Now I can do something in your life. I think Jacob was saved back in chapter 28. In fact, I'm certain of it, and I'll tell you why. You go back this afternoon, you read chapter 28, and you see what God himself said to Jacob after that latter scenario. When Jacob said, I, I didn't realize this was the house of God. You read what God said of Jacob and to Jacob back in chapter 28. There is no way God would have said the things that he said to a lost man. Jacob was saved back then. But he just got busy about life. Busy about life. Busy about marriage. Busy about having kids. Busy, 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 busy. And he'd forgotten all about God. You can relate, can't you? It happens. When I was 13, made my profession of faith. Sometimes I wonder about that. I made a profession of faith. Was I saved then? Sometimes think so, so, sometimes not. What I do, I did what teenagers so often do. I started going out and doing my own thing. Began at 18, 18, 19 years of age. God made me miserable. God started breaking me. And finally, sitting over in the parking lot at UNCC, I was a broken man just struggling with what God was doing in my life. And God broke me and called me into the ministry. God, I surrendered everything over to him. And, and, and you asked me, were you, were you saved at 13? I don't know. Were you saved at 19? Yeah, I know 19. 13 I questioned about. I really think I was. But what happened later was when I was broken and yielded. And that's when God was able to use me. Can you relate? That's when Jacob got the new name. And that's when God revealed another name, El Shaddai. And that's where the place became not just Bethel, the house of God, but El Bethel, the God of the house of God. In other words, again, it wasn't the place, but it was the God of the place that was important. Scripture says, those who seek for me will find me when they seek for me with their whole heart. Some of you remember walking an aisle when you were a child or a teenager and turning your life over to Christ. And no doubt you meant it. You meant it. But then you went off to college or you went off to work. You got busy about life. The kids started coming. The bills started coming. Lots of activity started crowding in your life. And as so often happens, God has gotten pushed to the back burner. Where's God in your life? 
we become Jacob. Is there somebody here today that like Jacob needs to get up and go back to your Bethel? Again, it's not the place. It's not the geography, but it's the vows and the commitments that you made to God back then. What are you doing with those promises you made to God back then earlier in your life? Are you living out those promises? What needs to change to live out those promises, those vows you made to God? Sometimes troubles come along that wake you up to what those vows and promises you made. Somebody may be going through trials and tribulations as a believer. And what, what God, I'm just saying one, op- one option of what God may be trying to do is wake you up to get back to your Bethel. Are you going to do it? If you do it, it brings renewal. Part of the renewal, the name change and the new experience with God. And also God reiterated that he's passing along the covenant to Jacob. And Jacob, this covenant I made with Abraham is now going to be with you and your descendants. And I'm going to give you this land. The movement of God in his life again. I want you to bow your heads in prayer with me this morning, please. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I wonder today who would be honest with God and say, Lord, I need to repent. I need to make some very definite changes and come back to you. You see, there are residuals in your life right now. There are the negative residuals of months and even years of sin and neglect. You might be living simply with the distant memory of a decision you made for Christ back when you were a teenager. But it's been years and years since you've grown any at all and you know it all too well. The heavens seem to be silent. God doesn't seem to be using you. Maybe some things have slipped in with the spiritual neglect that you're not proud of. I invite you this morning to practice repentance. Turn around and come back to Christ. If you do that and take definite action, you'll see a difference. Your spiritual life will be renewed and awakened.